We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13. And we're going to read a larger portion this morning and look at a larger portion because we're going to be going into chapter 3, verse 6. So Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Let's pray and ask that God would be with us in his teaching. Dear God, uh, we pray as the psalmist prayed, as David himself told us, that blessed is the man, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. God, you call us to delight in your words, to meditate on it, to have it tossed around in our minds and to be lived out in our lives. We want to be people who do that. But God, we also acknowledge that unless you work, unless you, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and open up our hearts to receive the truth of your message, that is all in vain. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, give us eyes for the gospel. Give us eyes for the word of God made flesh. Give us eyes for Jesus himself. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. One author recently wrote this. I love what he said. He's a well-known Christian author. He put it this way. Jesus of Nazareth is the most divisive figure in human history. No person has sparked so much debate and conflict as this first century carpenter's son who lived during the reigns of Emperor Augustus and Tiberius. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for 20 centuries. Jesus never married, he never wrote a book, he never held an office or led an army, but his person has been the lightning rod for conflict and controversy for over 2,000 years. Why would this author write that? Why would he say that? Why would he say that Jesus is such a controversial and conflicting figure? Well, all you have to do is look at what people have done in the name of Jesus throughout history, throughout the last 20 centuries, to understand why he generates so much conflict. After all, people have done many unsavory things in the name of Jesus. Just to name a few, the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, colonialism in the Western world, but alongside all those unsavory things that have been done in the name of Jesus or advanced in the name of Jesus, Jesus has also inspired many good things. He's inspired people like Mother Teresa or Sojourner Truth or Martin Luther King Jr. He's inspired the creation of universities and a whole system of learning, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale. They were all formed by Christians in order to advance the truth of Christ. Jesus has also inspired a whole new form of law and legal thinking. Jesus is cited in the Magna Carta and is beyond much of the world's embrace behind human rights. Even today, we can see Jesus has the power in us, in people today, to generate conflict, to draw out those things in us that are most unsavory, but also draw out those things that lead us to inspiring deeds and good works. So that conflict and division that Jesus sparked, it's interesting, that wasn't always the case in Jesus' ministry, was it? We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark now for some weeks, and we saw in the first several weeks of studying Mark, this biography of Jesus, Jesus was celebrated. He was celebrated as this unifying factor. Remember, Jesus began his ministry in the city of Capernaum, this little seaside fishing town where he was casting out demons. 
He came and he healed people who were sick. He came bringing a powerful teaching. And because of that, people flocked to Jesus in droves. He was uniting people in a unique way. But Jesus returns to Capernaum after some time. And we saw last week, after Jesus came back to Capernaum, all of a sudden, he starts to breed division. David told us last week the story of Jesus when he went into someone's house and four friends bring a paralytic and lowered him down through the roof. And Jesus told this paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I always chuckle at that story, by the way, because here's a paralytic. He's probably scratching his head thinking, not exactly what I came for, Jesus. But then we're told, Mark chapter 2, verse 6, something really remarkable. We're told that some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. See, unspoken tensions, unspoken conflict and division, all these things are beginning to simmer underneath the surface, underneath the surface for this group of people. They're thinking, who does this Jesus think that he is? Who does this Jesus Who does he think he is that he can speak the way that he does? What is this guy all about? There's these simmering tensions underneath the surface. And this week, what we're going to see in these four accounts that we're going to look at this morning, if last week the tensions were unspoken and simmering, all of a sudden they turn up to a rapid boil and ultimately overflow into a bursting conflict. So we're going to see four episodes of conflict this morning as we look at Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3. And the first area and first episode of conflict surrounds a man by the name of Levi. You can see this beginning in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. There we see that Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are coming to him as more and more people are coming familiar with him. But then in verse 14, Jesus passes by a tax booth. And because Capernaum was near this border town of three different regions, there was this region that was owned by a man named Herod Antipas, where Jesus was, another ruled by Philip, the Tetrarch, and another area known as the Decapolis. Every time you came into Capernaum, you'd have to pay a tax. There'd be a 3% tax every time you came in on all the goods you were bringing in. It's kind of like a duty tax that we have today. And If that is everything that was entailed in this, that would be inconvenient, but that'd be okay, right? There's two things that are guaranteed in this life, death and taxes. So we're all expected to pay taxes, and it's inconvenient. But here's the thing about tax collectors during the time of Jesus. Today, tax collectors are inconvenient. They're a little bit irritating. But during that time, everyone hated tax collectors. And I use that word hated very, very intentionally because that is exactly what people felt about tax collectors. They hated them. And here's why. The Roman tax system worked like this. Rome would not actually collect taxes themselves. What they would do is they'd farm out their tax system to local authorities. So they'd form them out, uh, farm them out to local uh, areas and groups of people would gather together and They would kind of pool their money together and say, okay, we want tax collecting rights over the area of Capernaum. So they'd pay the Roman government up front. They'd pay them about, you know, let's just say in today's dollars, $1.5 million a year. And they'd pay that annually up front to the Roman Empire in order to have the responsibility and the privilege of collecting tax in the area of Capernaum. 
So they would pay that up front annually, and naturally what would happen is tax collectors, as you would come by with you know, your bundle of fish, you wouldn't just pay 3%, they would charge you 5%. Or they would extort money by threats to throw you in prison, or they would impose heavy fines on you for importing too many goods. And you can imagine where that extra money went, that extra 2% went every single time that they charged it, it went right into the pockets of those who were collecting the taxes. Everyone hated tax collectors. In fact, there was a writer in the first century, his name was Philo, he put it this way. He was talking about a tax collector who lived in and around the area of Jesus. His name was Capito. Capito is the tax collector for Judah, and he holds the population in contempt. When he came there, he was a poor man, but he has amassed much wealth in various forms by defrauding and embezzling the people. So you can see everybody realizes tax collectors are not just an inconvenience. They are hated. They're extorting. They are embezzling. They are cheating people out of their hard-earned money. And what's more, tax collectors trafficked with Gentiles, meaning they were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go and worship with the rest of the Jewish population. And even more, tax collectors also were seen as traitors because these tax collectors, they're, they're not collecting funds for the good and the welfare and the flourishing of Capernaum. No, all of that money is being filtered either into their own pocketbooks or over to Rome, an evil empire in their eyes, an empire who was a foreign oppressor. And now don't get me wrong, I hate taxes as much as the next guy. My son was born on April 14th, one day before tax day. So I always have these conflicted emotions around that time. But this was tax collecting from an unclean trader who defrauds you and skims off the top to increase his own wealth. You can think of it today if ISIS, if ISIS were to take over the United States and have the United States as their outpost in order to do their bidding in the Western world, this would be like us going on Indeed.com and you know, posting our application to work for ISIS Revenue Service. That's a different type of IRS, isn't it? It's a whole different type of IRS. But that's what's going on here. The Mishnah. The Mishnah was this collection of Jewish oral traditions and sayings. And in the Mishnah... These Jewish people would always lump tax collectors with the worst of the worst. They would lump them with murderers and thieves and adulterers and people who do not speed up in the merge lane to merge. They were the worst kind of people, right? And surprisingly, here's what Jesus does. Jesus is passing by this tax booth and there's this man named Levi, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Here's a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and he followed him. See, many people have gone out to see Jesus. There are few people, though, that Jesus calls directly to be a part of his inner circle of followers who would eventually become called apostles. And one of the people in that inner circle, do you realize one of the members reserved was for an unclean traitor tax collector who skims off the top to line his own pockets and to rob good people like you. And in the very next verse, I love what happens, verse 15, Jesus adds 
insult to this injury to Jewish sympathies. Verse 15, he reclines at table in the house of Levi with this motley crew of other tax collectors and sinners, for there were many such people who followed him. But there's one group, and you see this really quickly, there's one group that is definitely not okay with this, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are not okay with what Jesus is doing. See, scribes and Pharisees were religious groups. They were extremely devout, especially the Pharisees. They were extremely dedicated to the law of God. They had a deep concern with personal holiness. In fact, that's what Pharisee means. Pharisee means holy one or separated one. These were people who saw themselves as personally holy, personally unstained with sin, personally self-righteous, personally untainted by the world. And then Jesus, in verse 16, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they see Jesus. And when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you have to understand this, that this is not, and we're going to get back to this a little bit more in detail later, but this is not a sincere question that the scribes and the Pharisees are asking. They're not coming up to Jesus' disciples and saying, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Why? I wonder why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. I wonder why that is. That, that really throws our paradigm upside down, doesn't it? Hmm, maybe we can learn something from this Jesus, but that's not the way that they're approaching Jesus. Instead, they're approaching Jesus asking a question, but it's an accusation in the form of a question. It's an accusation in the form of a question. It's kind of like the other day, it was my birthday this past Tuesday, and we celebrated my birthday, we had a nice chocolate cake, and then, you know, we were all enjoying it together, drinking milk by the fire. It was a wonderful day, and I went back for another piece of cake, and then I went back for another piece of cake, and my daughter Lainey said, that's three pieces of cake. Isn't that three pieces of cake, Dad? See, that's not a sincere question, that's an accusation for my daughter. <laughs> what are you doing there, Dad? By the way, if your five-year-old notices it, you probably had too much. <laughs> And Jesus' illustration to the Pharisees' question is a stark difference to the mission of the Pharisees and then the mission of Jesus. Jesus says, verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Two different ways here. The scribes and the Pharisees meant to separate themselves from those that they perceived as bad. Jesus came to be with people who are bad. It's that simple. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted people to clean themselves up to make themselves well. Jesus came to clean people up and make them well. The scribes and the Pharisees thought people could be guiltless and sinless if they just tried hard enough. Jesus came to forgive the guilty in order to embrace those who were mired in sin, who couldn't try in all their effort to make themselves righteous. Jesus came to forgive the guilty. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to himself. I remember when I first started reading this, this is maybe one of the most influential passages in all of the Bible when I first became a Christian. And I would scratch my head a little bit, and maybe you do this too, 
Jesus is regularly calling people sinners, which is quite offensive. And sometimes we think, and I remember thinking this, isn't that legalistic? Isn't that legalistic of Jesus to constantly be calling people sinners and, you know, to tell them about their sin? Isn't that legalism? And the more I've learned, I have to be clear about this, and I want you to hear this. Friends, and i got to say this in the clearest way possible, to be called a sinner is not legalism. Legalism is when somebody tells you that you can be righteous based on your own effort. Legalism is not being called a sinner. It is being told you can be righteous, you can be good, you can do enough. A person who says, try a little harder, work on that a little bit more, follow this technique, implement this practice, tweak this in your life, follow this tradition, pray a little bit more, and then you'll be closer to God. Avoid this, do that. That person is a legalist. By doing things that make it seem like you are okay before God and telling you that if you do them likewise, you will be okay before God. Friends, that is legalism. To be called a sinner is not legalism. To hear five practical steps to be more godly or to hear 10 spiritual steps to spiritual victory or to hear the patterns of a pure life Just do those things and you'll be okay with God. That is legalism. I've gone back and forward on whether or not to share this because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I really don't. But if you stop hearing sin or sinner from a church, if you're not being told that you are a sinner from your church, very quickly, shortly thereafter, you will stop hearing about grace. You will stop hearing about grace because once you throw out sinner from your dictionary, grace is the next one to go. The two go hand in hand. Sinners need grace. The unmerited favor of God. Sinners need the grace of forgiveness, the grace of healing. We need the grace of Jesus. Sinners need a great physician that can heal them. Good people just need to be told how they can be a little bit better. The good news is that Jesus did not come to make basically good people better, but to bring healing and forgiveness to the broken and sinful. He came to heal the tax collector of all he's done, to change the heart of the murderer, to give forgiveness to the unforgivable, and to bring sinners to himself and to be their God. I've shared this story before. I love it. It's probably one of the the greatest examples of grace I've, I've ever heard. My professor in seminary, his name was Paul Lim. Paul would uh, teach a seminary course in a maximum security prison outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And he would do this every Tuesday. He would go there once a week for this two-hour lecture. And you would see this mixing of people who are the worst of the worst with these people who are in grad school getting their degree in religion. And they're reading through a story in the book of Genesis. And one of the questions Dr. Lim asked at the following, uh, or at the end of his lecture was, what is the character of God that you see in this story from the book of Genesis? And timidly, one of the prisoners raised his hands and he says, what I see in this story is the God of the unrighteous, the God of the losers. Jesus, verse 17, says it, as clear as you can possibly hear it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinner. Jesus shows us the character and the mission of our God. Jesus shows us that God is the God of the losers. Uh, Chad and I recently visited uh, this woman who was sick. She's been sick for the better part of 20 years, 20 or 30 years. And she's on her deathbed. She has just a number of months to live. And this passage actually came to my mind as we were talking to her. Her name's Colleen. Because Colleen kept being plagued by this question, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Can I, can I come before God when I die? What's going to happen to me? And Colleen was worried about this. And the only words that came to my mind, Colleen, Jesus is a great physician. He's not healing your body now, but he has healed your sin. Jesus has not come to call the righteous but sinners to himself. She needs to hear that. We need to hear that. And it came to me, and I had to say this to Colleen, Colleen, what this means is that Jesus did not come for the good Colleen. Jesus did not come for the good Colleen. He didn't come for the good you. He didn't come for the good me. He came for the bad us. Jesus did not come for Daniel the pastor. Jesus did not come for Dan, Daniel the slightly above average father. I think, eh. Jesus did not come for Daniel the impressive. He did not come for the Instagram Daniel. Jesus did not come for the Daniel who wants to think that he is smart and talented. Jesus came for the smug Daniel and the self-satisfied Daniel. I don't think that was that funny. <laughs> Jesus came for the Daniel who tries to impress you out of his insecurity. Jesus came for the Daniel who has false humility. Jesus came for the Daniel, the Daniel that only God and Daniel know about. Friends, what version of you do you bring to God? What Jesus is saying here is that he came to be the God of the losers, the kind of God that once the true you to meet the true him. Jesus came for sinners. He came for you. That first episode of conflict, you, you see the, the tension starting to boil, right? It immediately rolls, that episode of conflict rolls into the second conflict. And this conflict centers around fasting. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, in fact, there was one day out of the year that people were commanded to fast, the Day of Atonement. It was a day when uh, the priests would bring a sacrificial lamb before the people of God. They would confess their sins over the lamb. They would sacrifice that lamb. And on that day, God required that they would fast, that they would afflict themselves. And during that time, of Jesus, fasting became a common spiritual practice that went beyond just the Day of Atonement. People would typically fast in times of lament or national tragedy, personal and social crisis such as war, famine, drought, and plague, or they would do it as a sign of their personal atonement for sins and humiliation and penance before God. So there was nothing wrong with fasting, so don't, don't hear anything wrong with fasting here. In fact, for the better part of a century, fasting and mourning, that was the, the regular experience of the people of God. Since the year 700 BC, when the Assyrian Empire came and took Israel captive, up until the time when the people returned to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity, they found that 
Their entire life was one of mourning and lamenting and fasting. Their temple had been destroyed. Their homeland was destroyed. And to make matters worse, there was one prophet who came, the prophet Malachi, around the year 450 AD. He came, and then after that, silence from God. Silence from God. God had been utterly silent. He sent no more prophets, no more word from him, no sign as to when their mourning and grief might end. So if you can think of Israel as a song, Every song for the better part of a half century was played in the minor key. It was all in minor D. It was like Mozart's Requiem. Or if you don't listen to classical music, it was like every Nirvana song. (laughs) Right? So fasting was appropriate for these people. Lord, when will you visit us again? Lord, when, when will you speak? When will you show your favor to us? So again, these people come to Jesus and This time again, it's an accusation in the form of a question. They ask, hey, Jesus, why do do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And in response to this, Jesus gives two answers. The first kind of scratches the surface of their question. The second hits right at the root of the issue. The first, scratching the very surface, Jesus says to them, verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. That's Jesus' way of saying, hey, disciples of John, Pharisees, you are misreading who I am. For the better part of 700 years, you've been crying out, wondering when God will speak, wondering when God will show you favor. You've been mourning about the day when God will visit you. When is he going to send a deliverer to come and save us from captivity? For 700 years, you felt like God has divorced you. But God has promised through his past prophets that there would come one, one would come who would come in the name of God and He would not abandon you or forsake you, but he would come to wed himself to you. The prophet Hosea gave this this prophecy. He said, in those days, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. On that day, mourning will give way to rejoicing, fasting, to feasting. God's new age is breaking through. He's gonna wed us to himself. Jesus reminds these people here, you're misreading who I am. I'm not the Pharisees. I'm not the disciple of John. They fasted because they were wondering when God would return. They were fasting because they were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Jesus says, friends, I'm the bridegroom. That day you were waiting for is here. I've come. I have come to reunite God to man. I have come as the true lamb of God, the the sacrifice of atonement to forgive your sins and take your sins away. And I've done it all so that you, God's people, and God himself could be betrothed and have a wedding feast together. Why would I have my disciples fast? The bridegroom is here. Hannah and I recently went to a wedding, and it was uh, one of the most rowdy weddings we've been a part of, for sure. They had nine uh, groomsmen, nine, uh, what do you call them? Bridesmaids, thank you. And when they're, you know, coming in after the reception, I mean, the place was roaring, absolutely roaring. People are clapping. And then the bride and the groom came in 
And I seriously thought that the roof was going to blow off this place. It was such a celebration. And you could imagine in that scene, if there were people off in the corner, these groups of people lamenting and fasting and, you know, they look wretched and decrepit and they're saying, oh, why did we come to this wedding? You, you would say to those people, guys, you're kind of missing the point of this day. It's time to feast and rejoice. Jesus has come. The, the tune is no longer D minor. All right? The bridegroom has come. The tune has changed. Nirvana has given way to come on Eileen. <laughs> or any Tom Petty song. All right? Things have changed. That's the surface that Jesus is trying to get at, but then he goes to the root of the issue in verses 21 and 22. And there Jesus really strikes at these followers of John and the Pharisees. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now that might make you scratch your head. It, it is a little bit confusing, but the idea is simple. Jesus is saying, you have an unshrunk piece of cloth. You put it over an uh, old garment. When you wash that garment, the new cloth is going to shrink and a worse tear is made. Same thing with wine. You have old wine skins that they used to put them in, these kind of leather-bound skins. You put new wine into those. The old skins, which had already been uh, expanded, once the new wine goes in, they'll be expanded even more, and the whole thing will burst. It's the point Jesus is getting at here. And his point is simple, and it cuts at the root of the problem with the spirituality of the Pharisees and the disciples of John. His point is this, Pharisees, John's disciples, I did not come to conform to your ways of spirituality. I didn't. I didn't come to conform to your ways of relating to God. I didn't. I have come to bring a new way, a third way. Here's you, here's you, here's me. And you've got to get that through your head. Pharisees, you are deeply concerned with holiness. So deeply concerned with righteousness and personal piety. Those are good things, but you are pursuing them in exactly the wrong way. Pharisees, Live to be holy so as to be approved by God. Jesus says, I have lived the truly holy life. Follow me and I will give you my holy life for free. That's a radically different way of approaching God. The Pharisees fasted to show how righteous they could be. Jesus says, I have fasted. I have fulfilled all righteousness. Put your trust and faith in me. John, your disciples have fasted and mourned because you wanted the bridegroom to come. Open your eyes. I'm here. I'm here. This way of relating to Jesus cuts at the root of all former ways of relating to God. We can totally understand this today, can't we? Because all world religions, all philosophies, even today, at the root, they all teach the same way. They teach that we accumulate a good record before God, and on the basis of that good record, God approves us. Christianity, the way of Jesus, it's completely upside down. It says that Jesus accumulates the good record. And on the basis of what he has done, we are already approved by God. Friends, that's the good news. That Jesus is for us what we could never be for ourselves. New wine is not for old wineskins. Religion says do more, 
do this, try harder. Jesus says, it is done. I've done it all. Now rest in me. I am for you what you can never be for yourself. And I'd love to sit on this point all morning long because my sense is 21st century Christians, our problem is not a lack of striving for perfection. Our problem is not a lack of trying harder and being better. Our problem is that we fail to rest and to receive and to take comfort in the fact that Jesus is our perfection. Jesus is better than we could ever be. He is the perfect one. Jesus is the new wine that we need. And if you still think that you can be righteous and good enough to be approved by God, I challenge you, have twins. And that will be completely crushed in your mind's eye. You remember my daughter, Jane. She was the one yelling during the confession of sin. She has a lot of sin to confess. (laughs) Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners who need forgiveness, sinners who now relate to God in this new and living way. Third episode of conflict. We're going to kind of blaze through these next two. Third episode of conflict, verses 23 through 28. My wife, Hannah, and I told you we were at a wedding. The wedding was in California. And California is really interesting. California has rules and laws kind of around anything that could be a potential danger. So, and and the intent of these laws are good. Don't mishear me. The intent of these laws are good, but the application becomes pretty tedious. So for instance, you're walking on the sidewalk, and if there's any change in the height of the sidewalk, there has to be a red strip painted across it, lest you fall and break your hip, right? Also, when you go by a crosswalk, it's not just a crosswalk with the blinking lights on the side. No, blinking lights are coming up from the ground to let you know somebody's crossing. Stop for the love of all that is good. I thought for sure that a movie premiere was going on with all of these blinking lights. I expected to see Chris Pratt or at least just Jason Bateman, one of the two. Or Prop 65, this was a a proposition that got passed a number of years ago. I went and looked it up. The intent is really good. The intent is that if anything has a cancer-causing agent, it has to be labeled with a Prop 65 warning that tells you this could cause cancer. The problem is, apparently everything causes cancer. (laughs) Anything in enough doses has a cancer-causing agent. So you'd go into the lobby of the hotel and it'd be this big warning, Prop 65 warning, you will get cancer if you stay in here too long. You go into the bagel shop or you go into the utility closet. The ironic thing of all of this is, we're all gonna get cancer, right? At some point, we're all going to be plagued by cancer. And, well, unless you get hit by a bus, I suppose. But the bus probably has cancer-causing agents in it. So (laughs) good intent, the whole point, good intent, but the application becomes burdensome and oppressive. That's the same thing with the Pharisees during the time of Jesus. And no better example of their application of the law of God could be a greater example of this than how they treated the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created by God. Six days you shall labor on the seventh. It's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. God says we're to follow that pattern. Work six days, rest one day. God even gave the Israelites a commandment to Sabbath. One of the ways to follow God is to rest. He says in Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Good intent. The intent is to worship God, reorient your life around your maker. But the Pharisees, much like the state of California, took something good in intent and made it tedious and crushing in application. Remember I mentioned the Mishnah earlier, that collection of Jewish sayings? 
Listen to what they had to say. And this was written around the time of Jesus and around the time of the Pharisees. Listen to what they said you're supposed to do on the Sabbath or not supposed to do. One who sows is not able to sow on the Sabbath. One who plows, one who reaps, one who gathers sheaves into a pile, one who threshes, removing the kernel from the husk, and one who winnows threshing grain in the wind, one who selects the inedible waste from the edible. I don't know why you do that. And one who grinds, one who sifts the flour in a sieve, one who kneads dough, one who bakes. Additional primary categories of prohibited labor are the following. One who shears wool, one who whitens it, one who combs the fleece and straightens it, one who dyes it, one who spins the wool, one who stretches the threads of the warp in the loom, and one who constructs two meshes, one who threads the warp of the base of the loom, and one who sieves two threads, and one who sieves two threads together for constructive purposes, and one who ties a knot, and one who unties a knot, and one who sews two stitches with a needle. And I need to take a breath. And one who has to tear at the fabric in order to sew two stitches, one who traps a deer or any living creature, and one who slaughters it, and one who flays it, and one who salts its hide and steps in in the tanning process, one who tans its hide, one who smooths it, removing hairs and veins, one who cuts into measured parts, one who writes two letters, and one who erases in order to write two letters, one who builds a structure, one who dismantles it, one who extinguishes a fire, one who kindles a fire, one who strikes a blow with a hammer to complete the production of the process of a vessel, and one who carries out an object from domain to domain. You got that? I'm glad you do because, you know, eternity's at stake here. Good intent, crushing application. That's the lens through which the Pharisees understand what goes on with Jesus and his disciples. We see in verse 23, Jesus and his disciples, they're just taking a walk through a grain field. The disciples then grab an ear of grain. They remove it from its husk. They press it in between their fingers. They put it into their mouth and they eat it. Then, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, let's be clear. There is a difference between grabbing an ear of grain and eating it and firing up your combine, right? (laughs) Big distinction there. So what does Jesus do? Well, he appeals to the story of David. David is on the run from Saul in the wilderness He's dying of exhaustion. He's dying of hunger, dying of thirst. And he goes in to the temple of God. Verse 25, and he said to those who were around him, Jesus is speaking now, have you read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anybody but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. See, David ate holy bread, bread reserved just for priests. He wasn't able to have it. And Jesus appeals to this event to illustrate this greater point. Verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Pharisees, you make the entire law of God with your Mishnah and oral traditions and extra precautions. You make the Sabbath something that is to be served. You make it oppressive. You make it tedious and a burden in the lives of people. That's not the way to serve God. And you forget this major point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is something that the Pharisees just could not get. If you are a sinner 
called by Jesus to relate in a new way to God, to relate on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, then God's law in general and the Sabbath in particular should not be a burden to you. They should be your delight. They should be your delight because you're no longer obeying God's law in order to earn his approval. Instead, you're obeying God's law as a response to the love and the grace that he has for you in Jesus. And only sinners who know Jesus can obey him in that way. William Cooper wrote it perfectly. He was an old hymn writer. He said, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his forgiving voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. If you have been forgiven by Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, then God turns you into a child and now obedience to him should be our choice and we should love to do it and delight in it. Our question should be, how can I serve and bless others in God's name? Not what can't I do in order to protect our own holiness. That's the third episode of conflict around the Sabbath and this gives way to the final conflict. And again, this one's on the Sabbath. Jesus enters the synagogue that he went to first when he was in Capernaum, his first go-round. And if tensions were simmering last week and heated to a low boil in these first three episodes, then in this tension, they officially boil over. And notice there's a shift here that happens. There's a shift. In this final episode, the Pharisees are outsiders. They're not the ones who question Jesus. Jesus instead becomes the questioner. and He questions what they are doing. So in verse 1, Jesus is in the synagogue and he calls this man to himself who has a withered hand a hand that he couldn't use. And all eyes are on Jesus, we're told. They want to see if Jesus is going to heal this man on the Sabbath. After all, if eating grain is prohibited on the Sabbath, how much more healing a person would be prohibited as well? So Jesus asked them a softball question. He asked them this softball question in verse four. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And the reason that Jesus asked this, it's absolutely brilliant, is it exposes what's at the heart of those in the synagogue. Remember, we saw this in verse 2, in chapter 3. We saw that Jesus, he says that their intent was to accuse him. Their posture was to accuse Jesus. That's what's in their heart. And we mentioned this before. The Pharisees and others who were critical of Jesus were not asking these questions sincerely. Instead, their entire posture was an accusation in the form of a question. And I have to say this by way of caution. Be very cautious when your heart begins to take this posture toward God. An accusatory posture. A posture that puts yourself over God, judging him instead of under God, humbly asking how you are in the right or how you're in the wrong. An accusatory posture sounds familiar to us. Why is my life going like this, God? God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Don't you see everything I've done for you? Don't you see how many times I've served you and been to church and I, you know, I volunteered all these hours? How could you be doing this to me now, God? An accusatory posture seeks to put God in the wrong and me in the right. It seeks to put God in the judgment seat and me in the judge's chair. And Jesus' question exposes the hearts of these people who have been following him and accusing him from the very beginning in these conflicts, Jesus says, guys, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? That's the Sunday school answer, by the way. 
The answer is easy. You can imagine kids are down there asking this right now. Students are being asked this by their teachers and the kids are raising their hand. Ooh, I got it. I got it. Is it good? Should it be good? Should we do good on the Sabbath? Is that it? Yes. But that's not what happens. It says, verse four, but they were silent. Rather than standing before Jesus and being wrong for once in their life and being humbled for once in their life, instead of saying, man, Jesus, you know what? I was wrong. I've been acting like a know-it-all. I've been prideful and more concerned about looking good in front of others than following you. Instead of saying that and receiving what Jesus has to say, they remain silent and they hold on to their false sense of righteousness, their false sense of integrity, their false sense of who they are. And Jesus says, verse 5, or we see what he does in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Their posture of accusation, their prideful insistence on being right, is driven by nothing other than a hardness of heart. Their question given by Jesus, exposes what's really going on. They have a heart that is unfeeling toward the grace and the goodness and the love of Jesus. They are more concerned with being right and good, and they refuse the righteousness of Jesus to enter. So Jesus heals this man, and their response, verse 6, the response of all of this, ends, ends on, again, a minor D note. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I have to say, there's a temptation in this to end on a very bright and cheerful note, but this is exactly how the narrative drops off. The narrative ends here. It says they immediately held counsel against him, how to destroy him. And it doesn't sound like a happy ending. But friends, Again, Jesus turns upside down what we think should happen. This actually is the happy ending. Jesus, instead of inspiring unity among the Pharisees and the political leaders, Jesus inspiring goodness and wholeness in these men, Jesus instead inspires conflict and corruption. He exposes what's in all of our hearts, which is oftentimes things that are unsavory, so much so that we, as well as these Pharisees, would ultimately conspire to destroy him. But here's the beautiful reality. That Jesus, even in his destruction, wins the conflict again. Jesus, even in being betrayed, accused, executed, crucified, he wins the conflict In fact, his death is the ultimate victory because through death... That is the means that Jesus calls sinners to himself. Through his destruction, we have a new way of relating to God. Through Jesus being betrayed by his friends, through his sacrifice, Jesus gives life to us people who are self-righteous losers. That's the good news. Jesus is for you what you can never be for yourself. You mean to crucify Jesus. He means to forgive you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this good news is just, it's too good that even though we betray your son, even though we 
cast him out and seek to destroy him, even though there are things that are unsavory and ungodly and un, unrighteous in our heart, you come to save sinners and call sinners to yourself. God, would you help us rest in that? God, we confess that we are people who constantly seek to strive to earn your approval. We are people who constantly seek to do good, to be acknowledged by others, and to somehow earn points with you. But Jesus, your son, gave us this reminder that he is the great physician who means to heal us. He is the God of the losers, the God of the unrighteous. He's the God for people like us. And we need him and his sacrifice more desperately than anything on the face of this earth. God, we pray now as we worship you, we would magnify the name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Lord, the one who calls us to himself. It's in his name we pray.